and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I run the centre, but I'm also an author. And I'm getting very excited because shortly in November, we have the return of David Tennant as Doctor Who for a brief stint as the Doctor again and bringing back Catherine Tate, who was one of the... Um, funnier of the companions in her role of Donna. And so David Tennant is holding the role until Shuti Gatwa is taking over to be the next Doctor. I don't know that much about Doctor Who other than being just a very keen watcher of the programme. So I have brought along to the podcast two experts and are going to ask them to introduce themselves. So starting first with MG, would you like to say a little bit about you and Doctor Who. Yeah, I'm MG Harris. I'm a mostly children's author, and I've written um, a time-traveling adventure series called The Joshua Files, which was definitely partly inspired by my love for Doctor Who, and um, another action adventure series based um, on a sort of idea by Jerry Anderson, which is called Gemini Force One. And mm, my first contact with Doctor Who was probably when I uh, moved to Manchester when I was a little girl and started watching Doctor Who not really understanding it at first, but because um, I wasn't speaking and didn't know English. But then when I when I did uh, le- learn English, it was my favourite show from straight away. Um, John Pertwee was probably the doctor at the time, and it very quickly became my favourite programme. And when I was about eight years old, a neighbour who used to write for the Daily Express, she managed to get a letter I wrote published um, in the paper, and it was about Doctor Who. I was complaining that Mary Whitehouse, you know, should not be basically telling people that Doctor Who was too scary. I was only eight and I loved it even though I had to watch behind the sofa sometimes. Um, most recently, I've um, I've written and published a Doctor Who book in, uh, called Doomsday Extraction Point. And Doomsday is a whole kind of side series that uh, just has come out over this last summer. Um, and we'll talk about that later, but um, I've authored that book. And we're also joined by Steve Cole. Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I'm uh, yeah Steve, a children's book author also, and editor as well. And uh, back in the uh, late 1990s, I was the uh, editor in charge of uh, BBC Books' Doctor Who output. And since 2017, I find myself as consultant editor to the BBC Books' range of Doctor Who output. Um, so I get to work with everyone putting out all sorts of titles, whether it's the big coffee table books or the target novelizations or brand new novels, or indeed novels written by uh, stars of Doctor Who as well. My relationship with it goes back right to the start of my existence. I think my first memory is uh, of watching Doctor Who in 1975 um, as a little three-year-old. And I've uh, yeah watched it ever since. For some reason, I didn't grow out of it. I, I understood that people were supposed to do that, but uh, I stayed with it right to its uh, final episodes in 1989. And yes, then uh, helped it through those wilderness years in print, um, looking after video and audio as well. And finally, uh, writing novels uh, for Christopher Eccleston's Doctor when it came back and onwards since. Yeah, that's actually that sort of the break from 89 until it came back. Uh, there was a Paul McGann film, wasn't there? And then uh, it came back again with Christopher Eccleston. And I think the timing there for our generation is that it came back when we, a lot of us had kids. So there was the thing of sitting down again with the next generation to watch it together, which was 
I, I certainly remember. But my doctor, I think I do remember John Pertwee just, but I think I really started to understand the program with Tom Baker. Yes, me too. Yeah, so he was sort of my doctor. Mm-hmm. I do remember one absolutely terrifying experience as a child that I went to a Christmas party. My dad was in the police and there was a police family's Christmas party, big thing in some London venue. And they thought to entertain the kids, they had a Dalek at the bottom of the stairs. That's and scary. I was absolutely terrified. I didn't want to go in the hall. I just, the whole party was just, I thought it's going to come in an attack because at three or four, whatever I was, the idea of the Dalek is like a fun thing that you walk past was just, you know, <laughs> terrifying. So that's one of my abiding memories. So it certainly had the power to scare, definitely. Um, so it's it's fascinating that the series has spawned a sort of world around it of books and what have you, because I know that's happened for other outputs like Star Trek and Star Wars and other things. Um, rather than being an IP that get, then gets turned into a TV program. Um, so should we just have a quick look? Because I know the books follow different doctors, but should we have a quick look at all the different doctors? Mm. I think there are now, if you count David Tennant again, I think there are now 15, roughly. That's right. And yeah. he is indeed the 14th doctor, so you have to count. <laughs> yeah. So um, going back to the past, who was the very first for those who are a bit... William Hartnell was the very first Doctor Who, um, way back in uh, 1963. Um, what's interesting about Doctor Who is that um, we got this reputation as being um, very patrician and very, you know, the prevailing sort of like dominance of... of what, but it actually started off very differently with the very first uh, female producer at the BBC was in charge of it. And the uh, the first director who helped translate it onto the screen was um, Anglo-Indian. So it's and very, very young because none of the uh, fuddy-duddies at the BBC really wanted to have anything to do with this. So it became the brainchild and the sort of gravitation point for a lot of young, energetic, zeitgeist-busting people. Um, and I think that in... in fuses Doctor Who with an energy right from the start. The Daleks came along in the very second story. So um, at the end of the fifth episode ever made, you've got a Dalek sucker stick straying into shot, and they kind of became synonymous ever since. Probably without the Daleks, um, it would never have taken off. But the producers didn't want Doctor Who to be about bug-eyed monsters and aliens, and so they were desperately against the Dalek storyline, um, which they thought was everything iffy and you know, bad about science fiction. Whereas, in fact, it was the uh, the success of the Daleks, literally overnight, that, that made the show's fortunes and made fortunes uh, for the BBC in terms of merchandise sales. So they left uh, Doctor Who to Verity Lambert and her team uh, pretty early on. And uh, it kind of blazed its own way ever since. And William Hartnell played it like a grandfather. He was a grandfather in it, wasn't he? So he was, yes. Again, people say, "Oh, Doctor Who's you know is this sexless, ageless man," but he's very clearly set up as uh, having a granddaughter right from the start. Um, we know that he's from another planet, but we don't know anything else about him. All the stuff about Time Lords and his home planet of Gallifrey didn't come along until uh, right at the end of the nineteen sixties, nineteen sixty nine. With uh, Patrick Troughton's last story, Patrick Troughton being, of course, the second Doctor Who, a rejuvenated version of the first with a completely different personality. So I've heard him um, referred to as like a clownish Doctor Who. Is that would that be fair? Yes, yes. 
Yeah, William Hartnell, who returns later in one of the first joint Doctor Who um, episodes in the early 70s, says that John Pertwee's the dandy and Patrick Charlton's the clown. So Exactly, yes. he was, And he had a much more a sort of softer approach. William Hartnell could sort of like, you know, stare and bluster and be very gruff, but uh, Charlton's Doctor was much more kind of playful and basically lulled his enemies into... Uh, completely uh, underestimating his powers. So uh, he was uh, very comedic, but also very you know, fierce in his uh, mission to uh, defeat the terrors of the universe, you know, because the Doctor goes from being someone who doesn't really want to get involved in uh, in the events of things and is very worried about changing history to basically being someone who stirs things up and changes status quo all over the universe, mm. which is why eventually the Time Lords catch up with him and exile him to Earth and turn him into John Pertwee, the dandy, as you mentioned. Yeah, and there's a song of the Mr. Toad about John Pertwee, isn't there? Even down to driving a, a little car. There's a sort of... Yeah, he does have his... Uh... Sort of slightly car. zany aspect to him. Uh, MG, you said he was your Doctor Who, so how would you characterise John Pertwee? Well, I wouldn't say it was the first one I started watching, but I don't think I really understood Doctor Who because I was very young until till sort of the last season of John Pertwee, probably. I remember the one that had the green death. Was that the last season? Oh, it's um, the end of his penultimate season, but yes, it yeah, was repeated yeah. as part of it. So it was, that's when I was starting to pay attention. And if you remember, because he was exiled to Earth, all of those early adventures took place on Earth, so they were just, you know, Earth-based. and Yeah. So when it started to be about sort of, you know, going to outer space and stuff, and I mean, that, that really surprised me because, you know, that wasn't the concept that I had of the show. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? They did it to save money on uh, exactly. Alien sets, yeah. And, uh, when but but I just thought it was set on Earth, and it was, you know, I thought he was part of you. I thought it was basically a yeah. show about you. Um, so I, just, I do remember really liking Joe. I, but I, when I go back and watch those episodes, it's not they're not quite as good as I remember. So I think probably I may more got into Doctor Who properly when I was really understanding, you know, who he was and that he was a time traveller who was you know, who wasn't actually trapped on Earth anymore. Yeah. Although I was quite cross about, you know, when Planet of the Spiders happened and he regenerated. Because again, I didn't know that he regenerated. So I was like, what's happening? What's happening now? <laughs> and then there's this new guy with a weird scarf and you know Yeah, I think it was so, good. Well you don't know that that's happening. No, because Sarah Jane right. was there as continuity, wasn't she? Did you like Sarah Jane? I love Sarah Jane. Who doesn't love Sarah Jane? Well, exactly, yeah. I think she really yeah. must have helped a lot of people cope with that trauma of John Paul. Yes, Pope, yeah, I mean, she definitely did, yeah. I was quite stuff. upset when Joe wasn't in it anymore. Didn't, you know, so when these things are not something that you expect, they are, and you're a child, they're a bit of a shock. But are, yeah. um, I think some of the best writing in Doctor Who comes in the uh, John Paul, we, um, season 12, 12 and 13 with the, the Philip Hinchcliffe period where you've got that so just an absolutely brilliant writing and of course david maloney who then went on to produce blake seven he's he's got a big hand in that so i kind of like and terry nation is still writing um so you know because well, i'm a big yeah there's a lot of personnel crossing over from uh, there's a lot of yeah so blake, blake seven, seven kind of came out of that era of doctor who yeah we need to keep um, going because we've only reached number three and we've got a long way to go <laughs> So we've got Tom Baker, who in a sense combines an element of the dandyism of John Pertwee with his long coat and his his scarf, but with the sort of, in fact, actually, he's like an amalgamation, all of them, because he's got um, a sort of clownish, dangerous, zany, zany rather than a clown, I think, energy to him. Uh, but he also has an element of sort of gruff, gruffness to him. I think he's less less safe. Yeah, as, I think as a person than say yes, the John Pertwee. That's a good call. I think Tom Baker kind of wanted to emphasize 
the alien qualities of the doctor and that he wouldn't always respond as a human would respond to something. So mm. if someone died being crushed by, you know, a robotic Egyptian mummy, um, while Sarah Jane is there feeling terribly sorry for the poor chap, there's the doctor saying, well, I told him it was no good. I told him that, you know, this would happen, you know, and she says, oh, sometimes you're not, and he says, human? Because of course he's not, you know, he's seeing the, the wider picture that the entire world is going to die unless the, you know, in this case, Sutik is not is not stopped. So um, he's always got his eye on the on the greater picture. I mean, although he defends humanity, the collateral damage is is something that that perhaps seems to matter less to him as long as he gets the job done and uh, and saves the planets. And you know, he sends himself up a lot, and you know, it's basically this bohemian dilettante running around having a wonderful time saving planets and uh, answering to nobody. So. Uh, he was uh, a great anarchic presence and, you know, hugely inspiring. Yeah, and definitely an- anarchic is is perfect for him. I have the impression, uh, I didn't check before we came on the call, but he did serve quite a long time as Doctor Who, didn't he? Seven uh, years, yeah, he was the yeah. longest. Is that the record? Is he the longest serving? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's in, that fits with my impression. And then, of course, he hands over to... Uh, where are we going to... Peter Davidson. Peter Davidson, of course. Yes, how could we forget? Peter Davidson... And that was the shock of choosing a much younger, it was a rejuvenation, literally, of the Doctor Who. And I do remember there being quite a lot of controversy at the time, similar to what happens when Matt Smith took over from David Tennant, that they went young. Um, And when you think of what had come before, it was even a bigger shock because they've come from quite an old grandfather to being a quite dashing young man. In fact, I remember he was being very attracted to him you know, a bit of a idol for us little girls. Um, so what kind of qualities, I, I think of him as young, caring, sort of more softer yeah, it, qualities. Yeah, he, he kind of went around, it, it felt like events were getting away from him the whole time. Tom Baker always felt like he was kind of in charge, but mm. I think Davison's doctor seemed a lot more vulnerable, and I think that was and very David, I think that 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 period goes through a whole kind of ensemble, bit, bit like with... Um, with thirteen, Jodie Whittaker. Yeah, that yeah. he he he's he, most of the time he's with you know quite you know a bigger group. He's got three assistants or three companions, and so you've got more of a kind of family feel to the show at that point. And I think he relies on some of the others. Yeah, and of course it went twice weekly at that point. It was almost in within the soap opera slot that was to come. I think they were they were using Doctor Who to trial um, drama in a twice a week slot because eventually, of course, EastEnders would take over that positioning but uh it was a big shock to move doctor who from a saturday and sort of like stick it on twice a week midweek it meant that doctor who was only on for three months of the year so that was a big loss to someone like me who was like used to having it on once a week for six months that was uh i was i I was losing a lot of doctor who even though it was uh it was about as as much it was just it was over so much more quickly you had to wait you had to wait in those days for these things to come back yeah well we do now don't we Though everything is always available at all times. So um and then we go to the next baker, who is Colin Baker, if I'm getting this right. Do correct mm. me if I if I get this wrong. And I don't think he was a doctor for that long, was he? A couple of seasons? Yes. It was a difficult time for the show because uh, Michael Grade, as controller of BBC One, um postponed it, put it on hiatus for 18 months. So uh and you know, cited too much violence and there was rumours of some personal antipathy uh, towards the production team and to 
Colin Baker as the doctor. Uh, Colin had a plan to make his doctor, who was you know quite again very irascible and alien at first, to sort of soften him up over several years, which unfortunately um, didn't come about because, um, yeah, as you say, he only did the two seasons, and at the end of it, was basically um, told he had to to go and make way for a new doctor. So it was not amicable in any way. Um, and Sylvester McCoy came along in 1987. Um, and there was no real regeneration scene for the first time in the show's history because Colin Baker quite rightly felt, well, I'm not coming back just for a couple of episodes to be killed off. I need to find new work, you know. So it was. It felt like Doctor Who was becoming, you know, a, a bit mired in too much real-world stuff around that yeah. time. The fantasy had worn off and it had become, you know... It felt. It seemed like it was. It was less popular, or, or not being watched for the right reasons. By you know, I don't know. It just felt like it was dwindling a bit. It was a sad time. I felt. I have to admit, and, I don't think I watched very much of this about Sylvester McCoy season because I, I particularly the whole trial of a time lord season, I just did not like that at all. Which was the the, the last um, Colin Baker, mm. and I just thought, oh, for goodness sake, you know. So after that, it was not. I was only watching it sort of sporadically. I really liked Ace, I have to say. I did like her, but I was, you know, I was kind of checking out by then. Yes, it was, I think it's it's difficult because there's that, I remember when Sylvester McCoy came along, I think I was 16 and, you know, discovering girls. And for the first time, I I think that season, I I very nearly forgot to tune in, which I found a very shocking event, which rocked me to my, (laughs) philosophically, it rocked me to my core, you know. Um, It only happened to me then and and one time later when, I'll tell you about it later if, if we get to it, but. Yeah, that, that was the only time I kind of stopped actually going, oh, it's time for Doctor Who, let's watch it, or taping it or something. I was just like, yeah. ah, if I see it, I see it, you know. Yeah, I think it seemed less essential perhaps. And it only and it was you know, scheduled by that point opposite Coronation Street, which is kind of the kiss of death because Coronation Street was, you know, the... And I watched Coronation Street over. in those days. Well, yeah, so I, I think a lot of people that. did. More people did than Doctor Who, sadly. So it went right back down to sort of like four, three, five million people watching and it just wasn't enough to justify... Uh, continued production and by then there was only four stories a year it was it was you know about 14 episodes a year so it was very much a you know a shadow of its former self creatively it was doing new things it was just there wasn't the audience wanting to watch so it was mm-hmm. kind of a, a bit of a sad mismatch really is as the 80s play out it does it does sort of go into a a pattern not of creative de- decline but certainly of um, popularity loss and Sylvester McCoy, I think we're back with the more clownish doctor again, a bit like Patrick Troughton. Um, yeah. I, I, people probably know Sylvester McCoy from um, when he appeared in The Hobbit. Uh, no, was it The Hobbit? He, yeah, I think he was in The yes. Hobbit films, wasn't he? Later on, yes. Um, as Radagast, one of the wizards. And he's very good at sort of physical comedy and yeah. um, a charming sort of performer. But it was definitely taking the Doctor, away from a figure of authority to something much more fey. Um, and I think that wasn't, that drifted quite far from the original premise, I think. Yes, it, um, it, it did go overtly comedic at, at times. When they tried to, uh, they, ironically, Sylvester McCoy's Doctor becomes quite dark in his last season in terms of being like an arch Yeah, he becomes very pessimistic, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And brooding. Uh, but... Um, I actually heard uh, Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy recently refer themselves, they were contrasting their, their performances to Peter Davison's. I think Colin Baker said, I was a custard tart, and McCoy said, I was a custard pie, um, <laughs> compared to, uh, to Doctor Who, which is quite a, quite a sweet uh, <laughs> summing up of their different uh, 
approaches. So we'll just um, touch very lightly on there's a Paul McGann film. Um, and Paul McGann. Handsome Doctor. The Handsome Doctor. <laughs> the yeah. handsome doctor. Slogging Doctor. I mean, that, that caused some shock waves. Romantic at the time. Doctor. Byron, Byronic Doctor. Yes, yeah, definitely. Very much so, yeah. I have never seen the film, so I'm not sure what I'm missing. <laughs> oh, I think it's it's fascinating, really. I mean, it's made in America. Um, it was a co-production with the BBC, so it it feels it does feel more American, definitely, because all the cast are American. Well, those who aren't Canadian pretending to be American. And that's where they break with the set design as well for the TARDIS, isn't it? That's where they kind of yeah. have a leap, and you're like, whoa, they yeah. up. It goes a lot more with Jules Verne. I mean, it's, it's kind of tragic, tragic they didn't get to, to go to a full series. I know that, uh, I mean, I, I came to Doctor Who professionally in the wake of the Paul McGann movie because, you know, in 1997, the year after, um, it still wasn't certain that Doctor Who wouldn't come back. So we were, BBC Books uh, took over the um, publishing of the original novels at that point, and I became their editor. Um and we were hoping that it would uh, come back and be a you know, huge hit all over again. But as it was, there was longer to wait uh, until Doctor Who did come back, led by uh, Russell T. Davis and uh, launching in April 2005. Yeah, so let's pick up there. So this is probably where many of the people listening to this, they probably have seen most of these we're going to talk about now. So... I've lost count of which number Doctor we're on. but uh, Number nine. Number nine, <laughs> thank you. Number nine. So the choice of Russell T. Davis, I don't know what he had done before. What had he been writing before? Clearest Boat, in the which second, was a the second Doctor Who well. character. Yeah, he'd done all sorts, yeah. But not um, known for science fiction. Coronation Street as well. He wasn't known for science fiction. This was the oh. amazing thing, because people were saying, why would you want to go to something like Doctor Who, which was lovely and languishing? He and was a fanboy. He'd been a massive fan when he was a kid. I think he mm. even wrote fan fiction, so he was a fanboy, basically. He wrote one of the um, original Doctor Who novels for Virgin Publishing as well. So he was, yeah, he'd always been, always been a fan. But I think uh, professionally it was like, well, you know, if anyone can bring Doctor Who back as, as a kind of like a a way to reinvigorate the Saturday night schedules and to get all the family watching again, which of course Doctor Who's purpose used to be. It was there to to bring all the family together, ready for the rest of the lineup on BBC One. You know, when you go into the Generation Game or the Two Ronnies or the Duchess of Duke Street or all these old shows. Oh, crikey. And these are blasts from the past. Yeah. yeah, but we hadn't had anything like that for a time because Doctor Who had dotted around all over the schedules. So when it was back on a Saturday and then it would run into the National Lottery or to Strictly or whatever else was going to come on, it was it became very quickly a very strong part of that. And, and I think parents rediscovered the joy of being able to sit down and watch something with their kids and everyone being glued to the screen. You know, it was it was a, a lovely time. But the Eccleston Doctor, number nine, as I now know, um, I think he he really did take a step away from the other Doctors in that this is the first modern one. All the others had an element of retro about them, their clothing referring to different periods, longer mm-hmm. line sort of Victorian frock coat type dresses, um, you know, Edwardian gentlemen, um, Victorian. They had the sort of air of the past about them. Whereas the Night Doctor comes in with his leather jacket and sort of modern skinny outlook, northern accent, um, and suddenly you feel, oh, yeah, well, of course the Doctor can regenerate as somebody who's a contemporary uh, and and not from the southeast. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, which was, or or Scotland, which was the uh, the only other place. (laughs) I think that was part of Russell's genius in that, was to to take, uh, it's an absolutely modern take on it. There's no... 
even though he's using like past monsters, he uses the Autons who launched John Pertwee's first story. But there's no knowledge of that required. All you find out in that story is that there's this mysterious alien who can travel in time and space. He, he tells it all through the point of view of Billy Piper's Rose. So it's a very modern character presenting her outlook. And he was drawn into the story just like the audience is. So, uh, and soon discovers, you know, how dangerous it is and how exciting it is. And the audience, you know, discover that with her. So uh, he, he, by making it so accessible and by absolutely positing the Doctor as, as a no-frills northern force of supernature, really powering through adventures, you know, in just a leather jacket and a T-shirt and jeans, you know, it was, he doesn't need a frock coat. He doesn't need, you know, so many, so many of the trappings that he acquired over the years were kind of like cut away. And I think that that helped the programme resonate with, uh, with a brand new audience. And we must sort of do a nod here to Billy Piper. I think she was so excellent in the the relaunch uh, because she felt like a person who you might know, whereas the other companions had been, I suppose Sarah Jane was a bit like that as well, but there had been quite a few singular choices in yes. uh higher concept companions yes high who, concept, thank you yeah. <laughs> um but she worked in a shop and um just seemed like an ordinary girl she had her family yes convincing family and a boyfriend uh so it all it felt like um this could happen to you and that, that was it. exactly the equivalent I think of, you know going through the wardrobe as a kid it felt like that you could be the doctor's companion yeah, and I think by seeing the the effects on her family and by sticking with those human points of view, it made it so much more relatable to a, a wider cross section of the public than ever before. It, with Russell's era, it's you'll notice that uh, humans feature in pretty much every story. So there's yeah. always a human point of view, and also you don't, or very rarely, do you cut away to shots of monsters talking to each other, explaining the plot to each other. You don't get, you know piles of walking latex hogging the uh, the camera is generally told through um you know a human perspective which again just makes it that much more relatable and uh, and believable i think i don't know yeah. if it was the first series or when she's with um, david tennant but i remember a very powerful storyline about her and grief trying to change history because of her father yes that was with uh, eggleston called father's day written by paul cornell it's an amazing story and it's so profound I yes, just, it, you, it, you, it, don't, you don't often go to Doctor I think this is where Doctor Who changed for me. I remember it scaring me before. And I think in the 2000s, it started moving me. There are several episodes I can say, yeah, I found that really moving. Um, you know, the tears well up. And actually getting that emotional response from the audience is amazing, I think. Yeah, well, I, I was upset when the Dalek was was <laughs> to kill itself in the uh, the first great episode, oh, yeah. the Dalek. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rob Sherman yeah, yeah. wrote wrote Dalek, and it's an absolutely beautiful episode. And who would think? I remember Eccleston going on Jonathan Ross's t uh, chat show and saying, "You know, you will." It's a tearjerker, and you know, everyone making fun of him, saying, "Well, how can Daleks be a tearjerker?" But if you watch that episode, it's yeah, you know, it's beautifully done. Yeah, um, and it is very sad the tragedy of this Dalek. It makes you realise that you know. The but, days not, of, but the night nice have feelings too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Villains aren't are aren't villains to themselves. They they have their own purpose and their own mission. But they you know they see themselves. Every villain sees themselves as the hero in their own narrative. And if you can't do what it is a Dalek does, then that's a you know that's a tragedy you're going to feel if uh, if you've uh, been touched by Billy Piper 
Um, as that poor Dalek was, uh, clearly there are consequences. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.